everyone, and welcome to OE Headlines, a new podcast show brought to you by the team at Ortho Evidence. My name is Abby Payne, and I'm here safely in studio with Dr. Mohit Bandari, who's our editor-in-chief at Ortho Evidence, and Dr. Brad Petrazor, who's a trauma surgeon and professor of surgery at McMaster University. Mo, Brad, welcome. So good to see you in person, finally. I know. I can't believe we're actually able to connect again. And let's just get the record straight. We've got screens. We're distanced. We have uh, both our vaccinations, right? Mm -hmm. We've got our double vaccination. So I think we're ready to go. And this is going to be great. It's exciting. Thanks very much for having me. So we're going to kick off today's show first by addressing our OE headliner story, which is our top news story of the day. Following that, we're going to jump into our Fast Five stories, which are the Fast Five stories trending within the orthopedic community today. So Conor McGregor, as most of you probably know by now, has suffered a gruesome lower leg injury at UFC 264 versus Dustin Poirier, who won the match in the first round after McGregor's injury. McGregor's sports agent from Paradigm Sports released a statement on Sunday saying that Conor is in recovery after a three-hour surgery. The statement read that it was a successful repairing of his tibia and his fibula. And both doctors are confident that with time, he will make a full recovery and anticipate his return to the octagon. So, Brad, mm. MMA enthusiast, trauma surgeon, I don't think we could find a better, a better person. <laughs> yeah. I want you to walk us through the film and help us understand what went on. There's some controversy some, from some camps on uh, that he maybe hurt himself in training. There's some controversy from uh, what Dustin Poirier said at the end of the fight in terms of checking kicks at the beginning of the fight. And then there's a great video. um, And this video was actually put out by Checkmate MMA on YouTube. And it actually shows a a really nice sequence of events that may help us understand when um, that tibia may have suffered its initial uh, uh, break. Uh, because if you if you watch some of the fight, he was doing a lot of really hard leg kicks at the front. He, he got up from a takedown. He, there wasn't any signs of limping. But then this video here shows something. So there's him at the beginning checking those kicks a little bit, but that one wasn't checked. And these are all the leg kicks he threw at the beginning. So what do you mean when you say checking the kick? Yeah, so he's not really checking those kicks. If you can pause it for a second. When when you check a kick, you want to bring your knee up and have the kick that's coming in hit the top of your tibia. So you're checking it. You're 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 coming at it. You're not letting the kick come to full power on your thigh. Okay. You're bringing your knee up to block the kick before it generated full power, and so it doesn't hit your thigh. Okay. Uh, because when you when you do a large number of kicks on the thigh, you get contusions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it, it does a lot of damage. And if you're if you're there at the fight, you can hear it, you know, hitting. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So anyway, he's he's not really checking a lot of them. And this is him now. So this is this is the point. He, he he's doing these up kicks and stuff. And and this was after those initial kicks that uh, some people think may have done it. But I'm I'm not so convinced that did. But there, this one here. Watch that. His tibia has come around. Foot's a little bit too far, and he may be hitting his GT there. Boom comes around. Boom there. Now he goes back. And this is uh, the Checkmate MMA team saying, um, if anybody's kicked a bag the wrong way, it feels like your foot wraps around it. And this is them talking about it. So, but then you watch, then there's that kick. Now just pause it there. Then he does a, he does a wobble, wobble right there. Yeah. And now the punch, oh, yeah. wobble right, right there. Right there. It's, fractured. it's 
right there. It's yeah, but he's now he's throwing the punch and go forward. He's coming off the foot. Now he goes okay. back. Okay, can we stop for a second? So, so distal tibia fracture based on that mechanism, yeah. right? Distal tibia? I would expect so, okay. yeah. Um, and so uh, the other thing is people are talking about the, the teep or the front kick that he used, which is kind of a pushing style kick. If you actually look at the video, the right elbow really didn't come into contact because he was still blocking with the left yeah. hand. So um, that video, I think, may kind of explain it. But you can see the buckle. You can see the punch thrown. And then it gives out. So, okay, so you know, let's make the assumption. It's hard to know whether it's a, there's an intraarticular sp split or not. But generally, that would have been a direct hit. So almost like a transverse yeah. butterfly kind of fracture. Right. Let's assume that you treat that distal tibia. Your, your treatment of choice, distal tibia, evidence would tell you Yeah, what. distal tibia, let's assume it's an extraarticular fracture yeah. or even maybe a small undisplaced split. Yeah, I would use an intramedullary nail for that. And sprint would tell you limited reaming, basically? Sprint, sprint would tell you limited reaming. Yeah. Limited, okay, so, so you, you do an interlocked uh, reamed, yeah. reamed tibial nail, right? It's probably distal. I'd probably want to use three screws. The only thing you don't know is how much comminution is in on that medial side because you really did go over on it. Go back to your original paper, Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, many, many years ago. <laughs> what were the predictors again, Brad? Of yeah, that's right. going to have a difficult challenge. With, Transverse fracture, right? high energy injuries, fracture, open gas, fracture, open right? fracture. So he's got two of them for sure, possibly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he was treated, as I understand, by Dr. Little right at uh, Cedar sinai yeah. Knowing who, um, what an expert surgeon he is, I suspect that uh, you know they spent quite a bit of time making sure that this was uh, an excellent reduction. And, uh, and uh, well, they said they spent about three hours. So yeah, I mean he's going to spend a bit of time. And they plated the fibula. The only thing we don't know is you know how was the ankle affected? Did the was yes. the Moses affected? With these extra articulars, they can and can't be. Depends. Uh, we haven't seen any X-rays, obviously, uh, nor any post-op constructs. No, I, I mean this is. It. I mean this is basically looking at. That clinical appearance yeah. suggesting it looked more extraarticular than intraarticular, yeah, and given the mechanism, it was a direct hit. So probably like a transverse style with the butterfly or something. Yeah. Maybe a spiral because he twisted it, right? Yeah. What do you think his recovery is going to be like? So everyone's going on around. Well, you know, he's out for the 2022 season. But this type of injury, the distal tibial fracture, what what are the risks for this type of injury? So we already talked about delayed union, non-union, depending on if there's gap, yeah. depending on if it's a transverse fracture because you get less contact you really the energy yeah. yeah yeah what do you uh, think well i mean if you look at other people in in high professional mma you know anderson silva got back after a tibia fracture i think his was a little bit higher um i suspect he'll probably be able to get back um but is, is the question is to what level um and is and again we don't know what's going on with the joint so is can it develop some arthritic change etc um generally he's going to be probably off it for six you know six to eight weeks and change depending on again what it was with limited weight bearing and physiotherapy. I think being a professional athlete, he may yet get back to the ring, but the question is gonna be, what's his level? Uh, you know, how is he gonna perform? And is there gonna be any of that sort of back in the mind stuff? Because if you're not out there full, and you're, and you're sort of limiting yourself from a back in the mind point of view, that's also really hard because it changes your dynamic, it changes the way you cope and compete. Right, and I remember like the sprint trial, you know, mind you now we're talking it would have been 2008 since its publication in the Journal of Joint Surgery. But I remember clearly some of the secondary papers from that trial that we put out really suggesting that, you know, it does take some time. And in fact, you plateau in terms of recovery. Now, that, you know, the majority of patients in the sprint trial were not, you know, high performance athletes. Right. 
uh, and very different. What about uh, in a situation like this, that nail stays in or uh, well, you know, after healing, is this something that nail would come out? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I personally tend to try and leave the nails in. Um, sometimes, a lot of the time, I don't know, 20 to 3%, that's just a, an educated guess that you'd be looking at taking cross screws out if yeah. they bug people. Right. Um, but the nail itself will stay in barring any sort of infection or complication. Uh, the fibular plate may or may not stay in. Sometimes it bugs people. The problem is, the problem is, when you take that fibular plate out, then you've got those holes, and he's going to be taking kicks and doing all those torsional things as well. So he's going to need to factor that in too. That plate comes in. I mean, the only potentially good news is the fibula bears very little of the overall yeah, uh, weight. Does. So I mean, getting getting and and let me ask you that a question. So in individuals who are usually like in MMA who are doing these leg kicks, you know, is there like if you were to X-ray their their tibia would they have like just a thicker cortex because of the repetitive like what is it what's making them stronger well and can you get that same degree out of uh, i guess strength in the in, in the cor cortex itself like, I or think wrong can. um and i haven't seen those x-rays but you know people talk about conditioning tibias all the time with the muay thai fighters because they're kicking with the shins a lot right um and down low and yeah so they're kicking hard things to get them and you would expect there to be some you know wolf's law hyper type of stuff the the only thing in this instance is you know, there are some people who have pain at the fracture site, even following well-heeled fractures, you know, and how is that going to impede and all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah. I still remember, I mean, there's been lots of evidence since then, but I still remember papers, even back, back when I was a resident, John Dershow did a paper at the Orthopedic Trauma Association where he says, you know, if you take out a plate for pain, 50% will actually be relieved, 50% don't get relief from right. plate removal, right? Yeah. So the reality is there's still a lot of unknowns uh, in yeah. this, but given that he is a high-performance athlete, um, you know, we're anticipating that he's going to probably come back uh, full force, but whether he achieves, uh, you know, ultimate recovery and uh, back to that, what we would consider pre-injury uh, level of function on his tibia is yet to be known. Sprint would tell us it takes a long time to get back, certainly not six months. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So Wonderful. I think that was great. Thank you so much both for your insights. I think we'll move on now to our Fast Five stories. So these are the stories that are trending within the orthopedic community today. Our first story is cannabis and sports health. So specifically, Shakari Richardson. She's an American track star expected to dominate the 100 meter dash at the upcoming Olympics in Tokyo. But after testing positive for THC, she's been suspended by the United States Doping Agency and will no longer be able to compete at the Olympics. Her story has caused outrage among her supporters who are criticizing outdated policies and argue that since marijuana is not a performance enhancing drug, that this policy should be updated. So before we get into a discussion, a few stats for consideration. To date, 18 states plus Washington, D.C. have legalized the recreational use of marijuana. 37 states have legalized the medical use of marijuana. Also, based on a recent study published in Sports Health, it was reported that one in four athletes have reported using cannabis within the past 12 months. So, Mo, I'm going to direct the question towards you. Is there any current evidence outlining the impact of cannabis and its impact on, on athletes? Yeah, thanks, Abby. I mean, you know, it's actually an interesting area, and we've done quite a bit of work in this. Now, this is a paper, actually, that, you know, that we pulled uh, by one of, uh, by at least uh, a faculty at McMaster and certainly a few others from Toronto as well, uh, led by Dr. Uh, Tim LaRue and one of our faculty was a co-author, uh, Dr. Moin Khan. There's a number of other individuals and I happen to be also on this particular review, but here's the point. You know, 
the evidence overall isn't great. Like it just, it's just not that great. And if you look at the 37 studies or so that were identified, first of all, you know, there aren't a lot of trials. So that's, that's the challenge. There were 11 of them that really focused on cannabis and sport. And that's about 46,000 athletes. Um, and these were elite athletes. And here's the point to your point, one in four on cannabis. But there were four of those studies that actually looked at performance enhancement. And they found that really there's no evidence for it. Now, you can look at the quality of the data. Two of them actually found it, it actually uh, was detrimental to performance. Mm -hmm. and, and they had some caveats as to what type of performance. But here's the point. There does not seem to be evidence that cannabis leads to enhancement. One can argue that the area of it being an anxiolytic might be there. You know, it calms you down yeah. in a way that you, you know, because a lot of sports is psychology, right? There's a lot of that element in it. So there's a possibility, but the functional enhancement has not been determined. So that's interesting uh, with respect to functional enhancement. If there's actually a potential detriment, does that put any athletes in a difficult situation or, or for any risk um, in terms of their performances, et cetera? Do you know what I mean? Like well, things, if you're arguing anything, you could almost argue that someone on it is probably right at a bit of more, but if you're going to argue, you could say almost a disadvantage rather than an yeah. advantage of this. Now it's unknown. So who knows? Right. Who knows? But the, the point is though, they're going to continue to be very strong until we get better evidence. It's always the way, right? You need more data uh, to answer these kind of questions. And it's unfortunate because I think her situation is such that she's going to be, she, she's out of the Olympics mm -hmm. fun, fundamentally. And I've understood that her role would have been like she was a front runner for the gold medal. Mm -hmm. And she I think, was, yeah. and also for the relay, right? That she would have basically got them to gold or who knows, this is a perception. Um, but her being out of it is a major, major uh, blow overall. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. All right. Keeping on track here, our next story, COVID-19. So let's talk immunity here. Many questions remain about both the natural and vaccine-induced immunity to SARS-CoV-2. Cue a new brief that has just been published in the BMJ. So at the end of the day, Mo, people are still talking about COVID. Everyone's talking about immunity, mix-matching yeah. mix drugs, um, yeah. mix-matching ma <laughs> vaccines. Mix matching drugs. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Take your pick. What's your take, Mo? Uh, you know, I would say that, you know, the questions that we get or the questions I think about is, okay, if you get the, we'll say in this case, the Pfizer vaccine and you get the Pfizer, you know, initial dose and then the boost dose, mm -hmm. can you take AstraZeneca first and then take a Pfizer boost? Can you take the Moderna? And then, you know, so it is. And we don't have a lot of data on that. And that there's early stuff that suggests maybe. That you know that there could be some benefit. Some have even argued there may be more benefit, but again, it's just there's no data on it. Mm -hmm. The question that is coming up more and more is, well, when do we need a third booster? Because you know there's going to be many people now approaching 12 months or getting close to 12 months. How long does this immunity truly last? And the booster really should be about, okay, you know, are we going to manage all these variants? You know, there's a pile of variants, including the new lambda. You know, right. you've mm -hmm. heard about that. Yeah. Um, and the Delta variant is the, is the one right now that's kind of creating a ton of problems in terms of, you know, challenges. So, you know, a lot of unknowns, but I do think right now uh, that Pfizer has applied, right, to the FDA for that third 12-month well, yeah, yeah. booster. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be lots and more you know, sort of design vaccines to say they're going to go targeting these variants. When they happen, how quickly it happens, I'm not sure, but they're going to need trials. And this gets back to this thing that I think COVID, for example, if you look at the the fourth waves that are pending. Mm -hmm. All the data, at least at this point, suggests 
if you look at Cuba, for example, like they're going, they're, they're being ravaged right now, right, mm -hmm. with, with COVID. It's it's, it's really quite, uh, you know, uh, horrible what's happening. Yeah. Many, many countries are facing this. And what's happening is the fourth wave is typically happening with unvaccinated individuals, right? And so one of the arguments is, you know, we can keep looking for treatments, but we've got to get people vaccinated in a way. When I say we, that the, that the general policies are getting people vaccinated to 70 to 80%. And many, many countries are nowhere near that 70 to 80% mark where we talk about herd immunity. So it's a moving, it's a, it's a moving, it's a moving target right now. And we just got to keep, you know, being careful not to get caught up in the noise and just focus on the evidence. Wonderful. That's all I got. <laughs> like, I'm done. I got nothing else. <laughs> Brad, you must have something to say about this. Well, no, I mean I do, but there's 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 biologic rationale for lots of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So moving on. So best interventions for surgical infections. So this is um, an OE insight that we recently just published. So this insight in particular had huge hits this past week within our OE community, despite many advances in the field of surgery, surgical site infection remains an ongoing public health concern. So our guest con contributor, Jay Parvizi, who's renowned for his leadership and research in the area of infection management, he gave his input a 10-step approach on how to prevent surgical infection. So we're going to pull that graphic up now. So we have a 10-step approach here. Mo, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, let me just say that, you know, um, getting Dr. Pervizi's uh, collaboration on anything we do always is, you know, just, it's just, it's a great insight to getting more information out and certainly, and his ability to, to distill information. So if you look at his approach and certainly it's one of, you know, and he, he's the first to tell you that this is just his approach, but he's using evidence, um, I believe very carefully. When you look at that though, Brad, mm -hmm. There's lots of steps in infection control. When you think about for yourself personally, now obviously you're, you're not doing total joint replacement in the right. same way. What's your critical step in, in infection management? And I think the follow-up question I would have is where do we focus on evidence thereafter? Yeah, I mean, so there's issues around the important ones I think are pre-op optimization, um, expeditious surgery, the antiseptics, obviously, and irrigations and antimicrobials, uh, respect for soft tissues and all that. I think they're all very important. Obviously, some of the medications, the antiseptics, the things that we do intraoperatively to prepare the limb, to prepare the surgical site for infections are very important. Having everybody in the room being cognizant of it. Um, the preoperative optimization is important. I mean, diabetic control, albumin levels, things like that do have evidence behind them to be shown that we, those need to be optimized. Um, so... And, and the appropriate antimicrobial given at the appropriate time before the surgical site, all that sort of stuff. It's multi multifactorial. And that's the issue about just making sure that the team is always aware of why you're doing what you're doing. When you look at Lancet Global Health, right, in their directives and the group that met and they said, you know, we need to be thinking about, um, you know, open fractures, right? Open fractures is yeah. one of their bellwether procedures. And they said, you know, this is around the world, an area where we have to have mandates for optimization. And one is early treatment of an open fracture, right? Rapid treatment of an open fracture and initial management of an open fracture within that two hour period. Right. What are we doing in that early two hour period for infection prevention and open fracture? That should be the standard, whether you're in Central Africa uh, or in the United States or Canada. 
Well, wound toilet as soon as possible. So by that, I mean some form of irrigation, some form yeah. of and, and reduction to make the limb look like the limb. But antibiotics, you know, antibiotics given as soon as possible. There's a NNT of roughly 13 to 15. NNT, use a I fancy term. What's there's a mean? number needed to treat of around 15, depending on the research that you look at, to yeah. suggest that for every 15 patients you treat with an antibiotic, you're going to prevent one infection. Yeah. That's a lot. That's yeah. big. So the, the biggest things are as soon as you can wound irrigation and there's evidence to suggest that potable water may just be as good as saline now those trials are very small but there's evidence to suggest that the sooner you get the wound clean and the sooner you get antibiotics in you can try and at least you will prevent some infections yeah i got it oh, well my whole thing on this on this general point overall is the following which is you know simple things matter and there is no one magic bullet right i right. think we hear when you have 10 steps each step matters and yeah. each step incrementally gets to the point so yeah great great stuff and uh, and again a really great insight i recommend those who are listening here today or watching get a hold of that insight and mm -hmm. take a read of it absolutely okay so next up we have redefining the future of surgical care another oe insight that we that our team at ortho evidence had published very recently a great variety of advancements are being made and adapted in surgery that have the capacity to imp improve surgical practice. Our team did a breakdown of six exceptionally promising and increasing studied innovations. These include robotics, augmented and virtual reality, biologics, 3D printing, and post-operative care, and big data. So we surveyed our community to see what they believed was the most innovative advancement. So before we put up that graphic, Brad, what would you say uh, would be your most innovative practice out of the ones I just listed? So let me let me ask you this. Before we put the graphic up, if I said to you, what's the biggest innovation coming to us or coming you know, in, in the horizon? For you, what is it? Well, I still think biologics. biologics. We haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, you know, for me, I think it's big data. I think data mm -hmm. is the oil, um, you know, obviously North Wales, we've always thought about it that way, mm -hmm. but I am curious to hear what everyone else said. All right, let's see it. <laughs> robotics. Okay, so top three, robotic surgery, augmented and virtual reality is number two, and 3D printing is number three. Interesting, right? I mean, like we're seeing a big push from yeah. many, many institutions and companies to put out robotics, but what do robots need? Data a healthy diet of good evidence, right? <laughs> That's what they need. So anyways, I think we're all the same. I think, but I think you see, good. robots can't help with the biology. Well said. <laughs> well said. There and you go. When you teach someone to, and I'll stop. I when it, you okay. teach someone to tie your shoes, you don't give them a visual reality thing. Virtual reality. Yes. You show them how to tie their shoes. Right. But that being said, we are not saying that robots, virtual reality, <laughs> no, no, no. and 3D printing are not innovations. We're just there. simply saying, hey, there are some principles. Biologics still <laughs> is out there and certainly data is out there. Great. Awesome. So moving on to our fifth and final story. Now, this study isn't necessarily new to the orthopedic community, but it is, it is an extremely important topic to be discussed due to the nature of the study. So to, to cement or not to cement? Hip fracture arthroplasty. So according to a study published in the Journal of Arthroplasty, cemented fixation had a significant statistically significant reduction in mortality rates at 30, 90, and 365 days. Mo, why are these mortality rates so much higher in cementless fixation? Yeah, you know, and this is actually also a highlight paper too, Abby. It was a highlight paper at the recent meeting of the Canadian Orthopedic Association 
Uh, and this is work led by uh, Glenn Richardson, and uh, I believe the senior author here would have been uh, Dr. Michael Dunbar. And, you know, it's interesting that there's been a debate around cemented versus uncemented arthroplasty or some sort of arthroplasty, but it's hemier total in patients with hip fractures. And I did ask him, you know, specifically, what is the hypothesis around uncemented being problematic? What would you think, Brad, that from the point of view of uncemented arthroplasty, what would be in your mind, the pathophysiology of why that group is uh, faring much worse mortality-wise as well as revision-wise. Uh, well, you said two different things there. You said mortality, and then you said revision. But really, <clears throat> revision itself has, you know, in that right. patient population, could in fact be related to mortality. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> truthfully, you and I have chatted about this, and this controversy goes back years when yeah. I was a fellow yeah. about cemented. And, and people always thought the cemented, you might get this fat emboli, and it right. might be reversed. So um, I, I honestly, I don't quite know, unless, as we've talked about before, you know, there's an increased um, incidence of intraoperative fractures with the calcar or just the complexity of surgery or something about revisions, like you mentioned. Yeah, like the post-operative, um, you know, post-operative periprosthetic fracture, I would imagine. They're, they're pretty devastating injuries, um, especially in that patient population, remember, yeah. right? Yeah, it means um, another surgery. Yeah, and, and, and it seemed, to your point, it seemed to be, when I asked the same question to Dr. Dunbar, he seemed to sort of echo that it's likely related to that particular type of revision. Um, but again, this work that they're doing suggests mortality. Before, it has been more revision, and that's the driver of mortality. The other thing that's interesting is there's wide variation in practice, you know, and he talked about across Canada, and that was also somewhat alarming for him. So this is really a way to... Um, advance some of his call to action, which was, you know, let's get the message out and let's get people talking and debating about this. And the evidence itself should tell the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, uh, really, because if, if it is about that revision stuff, then you're right. It, he needs to talk, talk about it. Yeah. So any final takeaway messages there? You know, in my mind, it seems fairly it seems fairly clear um, that there that there's mounting data across multiple data sets, uh, and more and more recently, you're seeing even uh, you know in this particular case, large data sets suggesting um, you know cemented arthroplasty may be a safer option, both with respect to survival and respect for revision. Mm -hmm. hmm. I think we've got to get those recommendations that are you know, discussing this up to a, a broader population, and certainly continue researching this in a careful way. Yep. Well, I think that's it. I think that's we're out of time officially. So thank you both so much for joining us today. And thank you to our OE community for joining us for our first OE Headlines podcast. We're looking forward to bringing you more news in the future. Um, if you do have any topics or questions that you'd like covered or seen in upcoming episodes, we ask that you please email them to headlines at myorthoevidence.com. Well, Brad, thank you again. Thank so you. Thank you. Great.